Hi, and welcome to the Western Mass History Podcast. I'm Derek, and in this episode I'll be taking a look at a little-known act of resistance to British authority that occurred in Western Massachusetts prior to the American Revolution. On October 25, 1765, almost ten years before the start of the war, an angry mob in Northampton attacked two royal officials. They beat the men, held them captive for many hours, and evidently forced at least one of them to resign his position. It's hard to say how many rioters were involved, but over 20 would later be indicted. However, before sympathetic local judges and juries, the alleged rioters either had their charges dropped or received comparatively light punishments for these assaults. The cause of this riot was not the Stamp Act, or taxes on tea, or any other philosophical arguments relating to the concept of taxation without representation. Rather, the riot started because of something that was at the same time both more mundane, yet also more practical to the people living on the frontier of western Massachusetts. Pine trees. The eastern white pine has been an important symbol of the northeastern United States since long before there was a United States. Since the pre-colonial era, the Iroquois had revered the white pine as the tree of peace, representing a unification of the five tribes that formed the Iroquois Confederacy. The tree, which is only native to this region of North America, was later adopted as a symbol by English colonists, especially here in New England. Many New England merchant vessels flew flags that had pine trees on them, symbolizing the region. And when Massachusetts opened the first mint in the English colonies, many of the coins that were produced featured a pine tree design. And during the early stages of the American Revolution, the white pine appeared on the pine tree flag, often accompanied by the motto, An Appeal to Heaven. A variation of this flag is still in use as the state naval flag of Massachusetts, despite the fact that the state no longer has a navy. But aside from its symbolic value, the white pine was also an important natural resource for the region. The trees typically grow tall and straight. The wood is lightweight and easily worked, yet also reasonably strong and durable. These properties made it ideal for a variety of uses, including posts and beams for the frame of buildings, along with the floorboards, paneling, molding, door and window frames, and exterior clapboards. However, these same attributes also made white pines an ideal material for ships' masts. And, with Britain needing a powerful navy in order to maintain control of its ever-growing overseas empire, it needed a reliable source of quality trees. In the age of sail, such trees were as vital to projecting naval power as coal and oil would be for navies of the 20th century. But just as there is an ecological cost to using coal and oil, the same was true for wooden masts. Having largely exhausted its supply of native trees, Britain needed to look elsewhere. And when it came to masts, the Baltic region had long supplied trees for this purpose. But not just any tree would do. The main masts of the largest warships needed to be around 40 inches in diameter, and about 120 feet long. And these were hard to find in the Baltic area, where suitable trees wider than about 27 inches were scarce. The Royal Navy could make do with composite masts made of multiple smaller trees, but this was inherently weaker than having a single trunk for a mast. Aside from the growing scarcity of suitable trees, being dependent on the Baltic region for masts was also a problem for Britain because of potential trade disruptions caused by war. This was the case during the Anglo-Dutch Wars of the 17th century, and it motivated Britain to begin looking elsewhere for mast trees. And, what better place to turn than to recently colonize New England, with its expansive forests of white pine. These trees were tall enough to satisfy the dimensions needed for even the largest ships, 
and since they were British colonies, it would mean that Britain would have direct control over this resource, rather than being dependent upon the whims of a foreign power. This would, of course, involve a much longer, more costly voyage to bring the masts to Britain, but the open sea routes were also much harder for an enemy fleet to blockade in wartime, compared to the narrow straits that linked the Baltic region to Britain. Either way, though, it was a very labor-intensive and time-consuming effort to bring a massive pine tree from deep in the New England forests all the way to the dockyards of Great Britain. During the 17th century, New Hampshire was the center of the mass trade. Historian Robert G. Albion, in his 1926 book Forests and Sea Power, described the process of harvesting mast trees there. Great masts were frequently worth more than 100 pounds, but many elements of risk and difficulty made such prices necessary. The cutting usually took place in the winter, after a preliminary survey. Good mast trees were rare, and appearances were often deceptive. He then went on to quote Sir John Wentworth, Surveyor General of His Majesty's Woods, who said, this season, the mast cutters for His Majesty's contract found in one district a fine growth of large and uncommonly fair trees, but on cutting them, 102 out of 106 proved rotten in the heart and not worth a shilling. Albion then went on to describe in his book about how elaborate preparations were necessary for this felling. A roadway to the nearest stream had to be cleared, and a bed of smaller trees cut to break the fall of the great stick. The felling was a delicate operation, for a slight error on the part of the axemen might ruin the tree. Hauling, or balking, the huge stick to the river was a task of equal difficulty and art for the mastmen. Anywhere from eight to twenty yoke of oxen were necessary for the great log, and, as in the Baltic, either sleds or three pairs of axles were used. Descending a hill was particularly dangerous, for even though the snub line was used to hold the load in check, oxen were often choked or crushed at the bottom. Albion went on to describe how, from there, they would float the masts down major rivers, hoping that they wouldn't be shattered on any of the rapids in the process. Then, upon arrival at major ports like Portsmouth, the masts would be loaded onto specially designed ships, which would carry from 40 to 100 masts. Overall, despite being a lengthy process, it was vital to maintaining Britain's naval power and to ensure that naval masts preempted other uses of large trees in the colonies, Britain began enacting a series of White Pine Acts, starting with the Massachusetts Charter of 1691. This document covered a wide variety of topics relating to the government of the colony, but it concluded with a clause relating to white pines, which read, And lastly, for the better providing and furnishing of masts for our Royal Navy, we do hereby reserve to us our heirs and successors, all trees of the diameter of 24 inches and upwards of 12 inches from the ground, growing upon any soil or tract of land within our said province or territory, not heretofore granted to any private persons. In other words, all trees that were 24 inches in diameter or larger, that were not on private property, were the property of the crown. The charter also laid out the penalty for unlicensed cutting of such a tree a fine of 100 pounds per tree. Similar laws would subsequently be enacted in other colonies, and by 1729 would be expanded to protect all white pine trees that were not on private property. And these laws were enforced by the Surveyor General of His Majesty's Woods in North America, along with deputy surveyors who served under him. These men were responsible for finding suitable trees and marking them with a distinctive arrow symbol, 
reminding would-be poachers that they belonged to the crown. The surveyor general and his deputies were also tasked with bringing offenders to justice. But this proved to be a difficult task. From the beginning, these white pine acts were unpopular among colonists. Having grown accustomed to cutting whatever trees they wanted to, colonists saw these laws as much the same way that later generations of New Englanders would view the taxes that were imposed on them by an overseas government without their consent. This combination of colonial opposition and a widely dispersed rural population made enforcement difficult. If a pine tree fell in the forest, could the surveyor general or his deputies hear the sound? Probably not. Violations were common, since it was easy to cut down a tree, bring it to a local sawmill, and turn it into lumber. From there, it would be difficult to prove the source of the lumber or the size of the original tree. One such tactic that was supposedly used by colonists was to cut boards to dimensions no greater than 23 inches in width, so as to avoid leaving behind any incriminating evidence. In his article, Pines, Profits, and Popular Politics, Responses to the White Pine Acts in the Colonial Connecticut River Valley, historian Struther E. Roberts noted that, in 1698, sawmills from the Springfield area produced 20,000 pine boards, which were then shipped down the Connecticut River. Were all of these boards made from trees that had been carefully measured to ensure that none were 24 inches in diameter? It seems more likely that, as was the case for many of Britain's other colonial laws of the era, these white pine laws were largely ignored. And even if a violator was caught red-handed, it was often difficult to make the charges stick. Local courts and officials were not always too enthusiastic about going after alleged poachers, especially in Massachusetts and Connecticut, where it was harder for the surveyor general to exercise authority. The surveyor general was based out of New Hampshire, which remained the center of the mass trade into the 1700s. This gave him the ability to keep a close eye on the activities in that colony, but the other colonies did not get the same level of attention. The first surveyor general to seriously attempt to enforce the White Pine Laws in western Massachusetts was Benning Wentworth, who held the position in the mid-1700s while simultaneously serving as governor of New Hampshire. By this point, suitable trees were becoming scarce in eastern New England, and Wentworth wanted to crack down on illegal pine harvesting in the western part of the region. Although ostensibly done for the king, Wentworth also appears to have had more motivations. In particular, his brother Mark had a lucrative business exporting lumber, including contracts with the Royal Navy for masts. Essentially, as Struther Roberts described in his article, Wentworth was the fox guarding the henhouse when it came to pine trees. By the early 1760s, Wentworth had several deputies who were active in the Connecticut River Valley, and they were certainly busy over the next few years. For example, in April 1763, 960 logs and 14 masts were confiscated upstream of Northfield, along with 266 logs in Northfield and 140 in Northampton. Over the next few months, 413 more logs were seized along the section of the river between Hatfield and South Hadley, and another 185 in Springfield. There were more log confiscations in December 1764, including 733 taken between Hadley and the Connecticut border. But despite these apparent successes, the deputy surveyors were fighting a losing battle. In 1763, surveyors Elijah Lyman and Elijah Clark seized seven logs from Timothy Nash and Elijah Alverd, apparently in the Northampton area. However, Nash and Alverd claimed that the logs were legally theirs and sued the surveyors. 
not surprisingly, the local court found in favor of Nash and Alford. The surveyors then appealed the decision to the Hampshire County Court, but they likewise lost there. Things would only get worse for the surveyors in Northampton, where they faced a local population whose views on the Pine Acts ranged from indifference to outright hostility. They struggled to find people who were willing to assist them in carrying out their duties, and as time went on they also had to contend with outright theft of marked logs, personal threats from angry residents, and a complete lack of cooperation from local officials. By the spring of 1764, Elijah Lyman was still one of the deputy surveyors, but at this point he was joined by Eleazar Burt. On April 24th, the two men wrote a letter appealing to the royal governor of Massachusetts, Francis Bernard. Almost a year earlier, Governor Bernard had issued a proclamation instructing the colonial civil officials, such as magistrates and justices of the peace, to assist the surveyor general in enforcing the Pine Acts. But this proclamation had clearly failed to make an impression on the local officials in Northampton. In their letter, Bert and Lyman explained how they had full power and authority to seize and mark for his majesty's use all white pine trees and logs that we find cut with the broad arrow and them to secure in some place of safety in order for prosecution, etc. They went on to explain how, pursuant to these orders, we went to taking care of the king's timber, but found it hard to hire hands to labor in the affair by reason of almost everyone appearing against it. Yet with the help of a few, we seized and marked with the broad arrow, for his majesty's use, 363 trees and logs at Northampton. But no sooner done, they was taken away from us all but 37, some in the night and others in the daytime in open defiance of the law, and no civil or military officer appeared in our behalf. We are still threatened that if we pursue our orders of being beat, knocked down, and killed. So despite marking 363 trees and logs with the king's arrow, locals very quickly helped themselves, leaving just 37. Bert and Lyman then explained how they had been rebuffed by local officials, first by Justice of the Peace Samuel Mather, and then by Militia Colonel Israel Williams. They wrote, Upon these threats we made application to Samuel Mather Esquire, one of the justices of the peace for his assistance, so that we might go on the business with safety, but he utterly refused to afford us any assistance. We then asked him if he had ever seen Your Excellency's proclamation of the 9th of July, 1763. He said he had not seen it. We then presented the proclamation to him and prayed him to read it. He answered no and wholly refused it. We insisted upon his reading of it, but all to no effect. He then replied and said that the governor did not understand the affair, for if he had, he would never have put out such a proclamation. Upon this we left the gentleman and then made application to the Honorable Israel Williams Esquire, for assistance in the affair aforesaid, and he said he had never seen the governor's proclamation. Upon that, we show him the proclamation, who was ready to read it. Upon reading the same, he said that he did not see that he was obliged to give us a warrant to press men for his assistance. He said that if we were abused and beat and applied to him as a justice, he was ready to take cognizance of the same, but nothing more. This is the true state of the affair." So, with a justice of the peace who believed that the royal governor was clueless, and with a militia commander whose stance was, not my problem, it was clear that they were on their own in the Connecticut River Valley. 
many miles removed from any possible support that the governor might be inclined to give. It seems unclear exactly how Governor Bernard responded, but Samuel Mather was brought before the governor's council. There, he was apparently censured for the way that he expressed his views about the governor's proclamation, yet his good character was praised, and he was cleared of the charge of failing to carry out his duties. Overall, their letter to the governor seems to have had little effect. Bert and Lyman remained in Northampton as deputy surveyors, but in the meantime, the irate townspeople would soon show that they were willing to make good on their threats against the two men. While all of this was unfolding in New England, Events on the other side of the Atlantic were about to cause even more conflict between American colonists and British authorities. In March 1765, Parliament passed the Stamp Act, which would be the first significant direct tax to be levied on the colonies. When news of the act reached the colonies, it sparked widespread outrage. For many, the rallying cry was, No taxation without representation. And that fall, nine of the colonies sent delegates to the Stamp Act Congress, marking the first organized intercolonial protest of British authority. But while many argued about high-minded principles of representative government, other colonists protested the Stamp Act in a less peaceable way. The summer of 1765 saw a number of riots in response to the Stamp Act, perhaps most famously on August 26th, when a mob in Boston ransacked the home of Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson. It's hard to say exactly what role, if any, the Stamp Act and the subsequent riots played in the events that would unfold here in Northampton two months later, but with an already tense situation here because of the Pine Tree Act, it seems plausible that the Stamp Act was a tipping point for some. It all started with a laborer from Springfield named Stephen Ward, who was part of a crew moving pine logs in Northampton on October 25, 1765. Deputy Surveyor Elijah Lyman discovered that the men were in the act of moving the logs, and ordered them to stop. However, Ward defied him, saying, By God it shall go. Ward would later be convicted and fined because he did wittingly and wickedly utter one profane oath in invoking God's name in vain. But, before the end of the day, Ward would add rioting, assault and battery, and false imprisonment to his list of criminal charges. The exact timeline of the subsequent events are unclear. The few surviving contemporary accounts that I've been able to find are lacking in specific details. A diary entry by Josiah Pierce of Hadley described it only as a mob in Hadley on account of logs. The court records provide more information, but the indictments are written in standardized legal phrases. Probably the most helpful contemporary description is from a letter that was written by 11 of the convicted rioters in February 1767, asking for the colonial government to forgive their crimes. These men included Stephen Ward, and also Elijah Alvord, the one who had won the lawsuit against the deputy surveyors a year before this mob violence. The letter, which was intended to emphasize their repentance, described how they or most of them have for several years past been engaged in the lumber business on the Connecticut River, that a certain gentleman in the county of Hampshire, by virtue of a deputation from the surveyor of his majesty's woods, seized all the white pine timber he could find on the river, and greatly distressed the people concerned in this business, and that as they conceive without discrimination. Whereupon they, at a time when people's minds were greatly fretted and unsettled, unhappily assembled in a riotous manner in the fields of Northampton, 
where great numbers of those white pine logs lay under seizure, with an intent to turn them into the river, seized the officer and carried him to Hadley, and there detained him some hours against his will, until by duress and battery they obliged him to resign his commission and to engage no more to pursue the aforesaid method of supposed oppression. This description is mostly consistent with the court records. The certain gentleman who was the victim of their crimes was evidently Elijah Lyman, and according to the court records, the men did unlawfully, riotously, and rautuously meet and assemble themselves together with many other persons to the jurors unknown to disturb the peace of the Lord the King. The records go on to then state that they did with force and arms make an assault on the body of Elijah Lyman of Northampton, then and there being in the peace of the said Lord and King, and him, the said Elijah Lyman, falsely and unlawfully imprisoned and restrained of his liberty for the space of six hours, and him, the said Elijah Lyman, beat, bruised, and wounded, and other enormities to him did contrary to the law, to the great terror of the people his majesty's liege subjects, and to the great damage of said Elijah Lyman, and against the peace of the said lord the king his crown and dignity. Most of the indictments read something along these lines. But there was one group of men whose charges were a little different. This group consisted of five Springfield men. Samuel Ward, who had the initial confrontation with Lyman earlier in the day, plus Joel Eli, William Day, Eleazar Day, and James Doan. Their indictment similarly included clauses about riotously disturbing the king's peace and such, but they were also charged with assaulting and falsely imprisoning not only Elijah Lyman, but also Eleazar Burt, the other deputy surveyor. And while the other indictments charged the men with imprisoning Lyman for six hours, these five men were charged with imprisoning him for ten hours. Assuming these facts are accurate, it would suggest that perhaps, while participating in the mob violence against Lyman, these five men may have left to find Bert. They may have then brought Bert to wherever they were holding Lyman, and maintained watch over both men for longer than the rest of the rioters, which could account for the differences in time. But, regardless of whether they stood accused of assaulting and imprisoning just Lyman, or Lyman and Bert, the outcomes were essentially the same in court. Most of the defendants came before the court on February 11, 1766. The session was held in Northampton, and it consisted of local judges and jurors, many of whom likely had the same dim view of the pine tree laws as the alleged rioters. In fact, two of the seven judges were Israel Williams and Samuel Mather, the same men who, prior to the riot, had declined to take action when locals absconded with the marked lumber and threatened the deputy surveyors. The rioters were not the first defendants on the docket during that February session. The court first had to dispose of more pressing matters, such as two men who were accused of killing deer outside of hunting season, and one man who was alleged to have been fishing on the Sabbath. When the court heard the case of the rioters, the first five defendants were Elijah Alvord, Nathaniel Bartlett, Thomas White, and Joel Church, all of South Hadley, and Alexander Mundy of Rutland, Mass. The outcome of Mundy's case seems unclear, but both Bartlett and Church entered pleas of not guilty, and their charges were then dropped by the prosecutor, Moses Bliss. Alvord and White both pled no contest, and were fined three pounds, plus court costs. Next up were the five Springfield men who had assaulted both Lyman and Burt. All five chose not to contest the charges, and they were likewise fined three pounds plus court costs. 
However, Stephen Ward also received an additional fine of four shillings for that profane oath that he'd uttered to Lyman earlier in the day. They were followed on the docket by Daniel Nash Jr. and Benjamin Church of South Hadley, Lucas Morgan and Aaron Eli of Springfield, Nathan Davis of Ware, and Joseph Higgins of Hardwick. Of these, Church, Eli, and Higgins all pled not guilty and had the charges dismissed, while Nash and Morgan pled no contest and were fined three pounds plus court costs. The last group consisted of Timothy Beatles of Salem, New Hampshire, Jonathan Penny of Windsor, Connecticut, and Seth Jenkins and Nathaniel Church of Hadley. Both Penny and Church pled no contest and received the same fine as the others, but the records do not seem to indicate what happened with Beatles and Jenkins. In total, at least 11 men ended up having to pay the fine of three pounds plus court costs. There was at least one more defendant, Nathaniel Williston of Springfield, who faced charges at the next court session in May 1766. He pled not guilty, and unlike the others who entered this plea, who had the charges dropped, he actually went to trial. The jury found him guilty, but his penalty was just two pounds, ironically less than those who had pled no contest back in February. Overall, these fines were not trivial sums of money, but neither were they particularly harsh punishments, especially considering the circumstances. By way of comparison, one of the deer poachers from the February session was convicted and fined six pounds for killing two deer out of season. Yet these men, who committed an overt act of violence against royal officials in defiance of the king's authority, were fined half that amount. And since most of those convicted were men involved in the lumber trade, it seems probable that they recovered their losses from the fines fairly easily. For example, the seven logs that the deputy surveyors had seized from Timothy Nash and Elijah Alvord back in 1763 had been collectively valued at 13 pounds, so it likely would have taken just a few illicitly harvested pine trees for each man to cover the cost of the fines. And both Lyman and Bert evidently resigned after the riot, and there are no records of any other locals being foolish enough to accept an appointment as their replacements, so the Northampton area loggers were free to carry on without being under the watchful eyes of a royal official. And as it turned out, the American Revolution was just a few years away, and independence would mark the end of any remaining efforts to restrict pine logging. The Continental Congress did raise the matter in December 1777, with a resolution that stated, that it be earnestly recommended to the legislatures of the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay, Connecticut, and New York to take effectual measures for the preservation of all pine timber growing within their respective territories, which may be suitable and useful for masts or other purposes of navigation, and for preventing any waste and destruction of that valuable kind of timber. But in the years prior to the current U.S. Constitution, the Continental Congress had very little direct authority over the states, beyond issuing recommendations such as these. And, predictably, these states were not particularly interested in revisiting this controversial topic, so no action was ever taken. In the years following the Revolution, as settlers moved into the remote rural areas of northern and western New England, logging activity increased not only for pines, but also for many other species of trees. This logging plus the need for cleared agricultural land, led to the large-scale deforestation of the New England landscape, to the point where, by the late 1800s, up to 80% of the region's forests had been cleared. By this point, nearly all of the big white pines were long gone. The 1894 book, 
a report on the trees and shrubs growing naturally in the forests of Massachusetts, described how the species often reaches 100 feet, and up to 130 to 140 feet in western Massachusetts. However, the book also notes that pines had previously once been much taller, before widespread logging. The author, George B. Emerson, cited an early 19th century account by Yale President Timothy Dwight, who claimed that pine trees often grew to 250 feet in height and 6 feet in diameter, with one tree in Lancaster, New Hampshire, supposedly reaching 264 feet. It's hard to say exactly how accurate these figures were, in part because feet and inches were not necessarily precisely defined back then. But part of it could also be the inherent challenges with measuring tall trees. Even today, many tall trees have been the subject of wildly inaccurate measurements. Either way, though, it seems likely that white pines did, at times, top 200 feet in height. In the meantime, the New England landscape has, over the past century, undergone yet another major transformation. The clear-cutting of the 19th century gave way to reforestation of the 20th century, as former agricultural land grew in and reverted to forest. The evidence of this is still apparent in the many stone walls that traverse the New England countryside, a reminder of the fields that farmers abandoned for more productive land out west, or for jobs in the industrializing cities. This reforestation has had a remarkable effect on white pines, especially here in western Massachusetts. A 2019 report by big tree expert Robert T. Leverett explains how, as recently as the early 1990s, white pines in the state rarely exceeded 140 feet, and by 1990 there was only one known 150-foot tree. But, in the past 30 years, these trees have continued to grow and are now finally beginning to approach the heights that the species had once achieved during the colonial era. Leverett's report identified 187 trees in the state, that are 150 feet or higher. They are found in nine different sites, mostly in western Massachusetts. Most of these sites have just one or two such trees, but there are at least six at Ice Glen and Stockbridge, nine at Kenneth Dubuque Memorial State Forest in Holly, Plainfield, and Savoy, and 19 at the William Cullen Bryant Homestead in Cummington. But the vast majority of these trees are at the Mohawk Trail State Forest in Charlemont, which has at least 145 pines, that are over 150 feet, as of 2019. And of those, there are at least two that have exceeded 170 feet, making them the tallest known trees in New England. As of 2019, the taller of these two pines was the Jake Swamp Tree, at 176.2 feet. Like many other forest-grown pines, it is not exceptionally wide, since height is more important when competing with other trees but with a circumference of 10.83 feet and a diameter of nearly 3.5 feet, it would have been well within the specifications for an ideal masked pine of the 1700s. Its exact location is not publicly disclosed in order to help protect it, but it is one of several large pines in the Trees of Peace Grove, located at the base of Todd Mountain. The tree is named in honor of Jake Swamp, a Mohawk chief who founded the Tree of Peace Society in 1984. The second tallest pine is Saheda, named for a Mohawk ambassador who was killed by Pocumtux in 1664. The tree is probably close to 200 years old, and it was 172 feet tall as of 2019, with a circumference of 12.2 feet and a diameter of nearly 4 feet. It is located on the north side of Todd Mountain, on the banks of the Deerfield River. 
It's part of the Elder's Grove, which as of 2019 had 27 pines above 130 feet, 15 above 150 feet, and 5 above 160 feet. This site is more accessible to the public than the Trees of Peace, and can be reached via a half-mile trail from the Deerfield River Bridge at Zor Gap. And the trees can also be seen from the road, including Sahada, which stands out with its two main stems in the upper part of the tree. Overall, white pines remain a common feature on the New England landscape, whether growing in reforested farmland, on the side of the road, or even planted as ornamental trees in suburban yards. In fact, they are so ubiquitous that you probably don't give a whole lot of thought to them at all, unless it's to rake up the fallen leaves in your yard, or clean sap off of your car. But Western Mass is perhaps the best place in New England to truly experience just how big these trees can get. And definitely the two best spots in Western Mass are the Bryant Homestead in Cummington and the Mohawk Trail State Forest in Charlemont. Whichever one you go to, you will certainly leave with a better understanding of why white pines cause so much conflict between colonists and the British government, and why they have remained such an enduring symbol of New England. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Western Mass History. For more information, including links to the sources used for this episode, check out the episode description. And for photos, including some of the trees at the Bryant Homestead and Mohawk Trail State Forest, check out our social media pages. You can follow Western Mass History on facebook.com slash westernmasshistory and on Instagram at westernmasshistory. And feel free to reach out if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. If you like this episode, you can also subscribe to future episodes. Western Mass History is available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.